It's so good to be back with you in a different setting. I, um, I don't get to preach very often. Um, sometimes I'm just considered more of a policy wonk within the covenant, you know, and so uh, this, is, this is a joy. Um, before we get going, let's pray together, okay? Our God, thank you for this time, for your word to go forth. We all come here today needing to hear a word from you, and we open our lives to what your spirit says to us today. In the name of Jesus, amen. Um, so a couple little things in the background, and I was telling the group as we were praying before the service that just a, a little bit is that when, when you're in my role as associate superintendent for the Central Conference, and you're asked to speak in different churches, um, I have to admit I have like five sermons in the can. And I get to pull one of those out. And one of those sermons, by the way, is Ephesians chapter 3. So when Nate called me and he said you were going through Ephesians, I go, oh, cool, I'll do chapter 3. And then he said, well, it gave me the dates and I'm gone next week. So I had to do something completely different. And uh, it was a challenge. And, and it was a challenge in, in a number of ways for me. Um, the last several weeks in my life have, have not been the most joyful, grace-filled experiences in my life. And I was feeling down. And when you approach a chapter like Ephesians chapter 2, and you're feeling not very graceful or grace-filled, then it's kind of hard. It's a, it's, a, it's a different kind of challenge to come up with a sermon. And so, as, as, as I, and you need to know a little bit also about my background. I grew up in a little Bible church on the north side of Chicago, and I went to Awana. Anybody here ever go to Awana? As a, okay, there's a few of you. And, and I was a pal, the youngest of the Awana people, and the, one of the first verses that I learned and memorized when I was coming up at that time was Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, and it became my favorite verse in all the Bibles, or the two verses in all the Bible. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of, your, and, and that not of yourself, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. King James, by the way, okay? Um, and uh, that, I, I just remembered that verse over and over again. Part of the background of that is I, was, I became a Christian or I was saved when I was four years old. And people look and say, well, how, do, how could you tell you were saved? Well, I stopped hanging with the tough crowd. <laughs> I love the idea of having these little children and five years old and whatever and just saying, yeah. And, and when I read through scriptures and we read some of the things like even what we read in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 2 here, I have to admit I'm not quite connecting because Paul talks about what we were and connects us somehow with what appears to be a terrible, debaucherous life that somehow we were lived in and steeped in. Not my experience, folks. And so I can't, I can't quite get my head around that. And I didn't know when I learned Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 that grace as salvation was Free, actually freed me from this old life because I didn't have the old life to be freed from. Anybody here identify with that a little bit? Is this just me? Okay, good, cool, because we're kind of in the same place together. So I've got all this background that I'm bringing to this passage. I'm already saying this is not the most grace-filled time in my life. 
And I was home two Saturday nights ago, and I was home alone sitting on the back porch. And as I was sitting on our deck, contemplating things about how life was going and some pretty deep stuff going on in my life at that time, a new neighbor who's been in our neighborhood for about six months comes walking out. His name is Eli. He stands about this tall. And Eli is a Romanian Pentecostal who we got to talk to and introduce. And Eli couldn't see me because he was, the bushes are about this high and he was down below them. And he came and sat in a chair in his backyard and he had a harmonica. And he began to play the harmonica. And I, it was a familiar chorus and it went, da, 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 da. Dun, da, 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 da. And I'm like, oh God, what a gift. You didn't even know what I needed at that moment. And it was just from Eli and a harmonica in the backyard saying, this is a touch of grace. What an amazing thing. There was another piece of grace given to me, and it was actually the foundation for this sermon as I wrote it this week. And that was last week on Sunday evening. Joanna and I got, Joanna's here by the way today, and Joanna and I got to go to um, the Goodman Theater uh, version of The Music Man. It was their opening night. Anybody here have ever seen The Music Man, either the movie? Okay, some of you did. So that's how the sermon got its title. Is this Ephesus or is it River City? And so, um, as I was sitting down writing the sermon, I thought, you know what, somehow that's connecting with me. And it's connecting with me in a way different than when I was four years old. But it's connecting with me in terms of the human dilemma. And think, some people would think, wow, it's such a smarmy show in some ways. It's just got a bunch of happy people dancing around and 76 trombones and 110 coronets and all that. But there were some key pieces to this. And so this sermon comes out of the Music Man and Ephesians chapter 2. So good luck with this, okay? Um, But there's just something you need to know about the Music Man. Mary Zimmerman did the production at the Goodman Theater, and the story is set in fictional River City, Iowa. Now, anybody here know what River City really is? It's Mason City. Thank you. Okay, so... River City, Iowa, Meredith Wilson, who was the writer, is it's his hometown. Okay? And the plot concerns a con man named Harold Hill, who poses as a boys' band organizer and leader, and he sells band instruments and uniforms to a naive Midwestern town folk, promising to train the members of the new band. Harold is no musician, however and he plans to skip town without giving any music lessons. Now there's a prim librarian and piano teacher named Marion. Some of you remember Marion, Madam Librarian, okay. That, and Marion Peru sees through him, she knows he's a con, but when Harold helps her younger brother overcome his lisp and social awkwardness, Marion begins to fall in love and Harold risks being caught to respond to that love. There's a couple other characters you need to know. One is Mayor Shin. Mayor Shin is a self-serving politician, he's a classic politician, who challenges the credentials of Harold Hill, and he would be identified as the legalist. 
There's a guy named Char Charlie Cowell, and Charlie is an anvil salesman. I, I would never think anybody could sell anvils. You know, the, the only ones I knew of were on the, movie, the, the, the cartoon Roadrunner, who would always be out there and the anvil would be falling and smacking. Right? Okay, you get it. So, all right, so here we go. But we're going to go back to Ephesus. Paul, starting this, chap starting this chapter in Ephesus, is really kind of a thing that he does with all of his church writings except for Galatians. And he starts by doing an opening which is praises, where, where he actually praises how he sees the work of God in the lives of the people. And he's thankful for that. And in Ephesians, he does the same thing. If you did Ephesians 1 last week, you saw that. There was the whole role of the church in and how God is using the church and has prepared the church and seeing the great life in the church in Ephesus. He's enthused about that. And he wants to remind them who they are. And then in chapter 2, he starts, um, Paul does what's pretty consistent. Um, he reminds the readers of their former position as Gentiles and sinners, referencing the life which is without direction, identity, and purpose, which was found in the covenant as an inheritance. Now, following the ways of the world and the spirit who is at work with those of, in those of, who are of disobedience, Paul also makes an interesting statement, though, in verse 3. Because in verse 3, he takes his identity not just from the Gentile sinners and those apart from God, but also there's an inclusiveness of those with the Jewish inheritance, too. Paul uses the word there, just briefly introducing the all of us, meaning that there wasn't. So he's letting us know that there wasn't a distinction between those who were steeped in Jewishness and also those who actually were the, among the Gentiles where these churches were now coming up. Um, Paul actually at this time begins to take a stand on inclusiveness. And he takes a stand about the human predicament apart from Christ, saying that we are all deserving of wrath. All of us. Now that would be interesting, not just for the Gentiles, under this context they seem to be identifying with that and know it, but certainly also lumping in those from his own Hebraic tradition and heritage into that same place. That's where I say I got saved at four years old. I could hear a message like that, but I could never really get it because I never knew a time when I wasn't connected to the church, when I wasn't somehow infused with this understanding in the life of God and then everybody else out there needed it, and so I had these ideas of what the world was like. Back to River City. So as we watch Music Man, we are early on made aware of the struggle of small town existence. Now, it's not a noted rampant evil in the town, but we could almost perceive it as kind of a numbing mediocrity, a pulsating compliance of all the different types of people under the exacting thumb of a mayor who calls the shots as the authoritarian protector of the town. Now, on a personal level, it's lived out in the genuinely somber librarian, Marion, who lives with her mother and a younger brother who's socially awkward, 
and was hardly spoken since his father's death. So when the huckster, Harold Hill, makes the scene, he engages the town by first pointing out that the allowance of a pool hall was the telltale sign of the degrading morality in the city. Some of you might remember the song. And that spells trouble, capital T, and it rhymes with P, and that spells pool. Okay, so, so right now the town is becoming aware of all this evil that's lurking about. What he's actually trying to do is he's trying to raise the anxiety level so that, so that um, he's trying to raise it high to enlist a youth band with his sale of trombones, coronets, and band uniforms. Bright red, by the way. Harold cons most of the village with the hopes of something better and morally superior to the slothful negligence of the pending delinquency. Get the picture? Tying that in loosely, I guess, but tying in somewhat with Paul's in the introduction here and the problem with humanity that's stated in chapter 2. Now, of course, Harold does not know anything about music, and he's hoping to sell the goods and split town before he can be found out. We're going to switch back to Ephesus. And it's at this point that the Apostle Paul introduces a conjunction. Now, in Ephesians, more than any of, any of the other epistles that I've read, Paul, uh, just at least in terms of English translations, is filled with more run-on sentences that would almost paralyze any English teacher in this room. He is the author of the conjunction. But, and, therefore, nevertheless, over and over there's conjunctions. But when Paul does this, pay attention. In some ways, these become the most important words in the letters that he's putting out there because it does connect to the previous thought. And it's at this point that Paul introduces the conjunction's very important word, but. But, because of God's great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ even when we were neck deep in sin dead in our transgressions. God even positioned us with Christ in heavenly places. This is all a but. Paul is representing the human dilemma. And but, but, God in Christ has drawn us to himself, has seated us with him in heavenly places. God in Christ has shown to the watching world his incomparable riches and grace and to prove that it is his kindness, not wrath, that leads humanity toward salvation. I could take this by one passage in Ephesians, but it's also talked about in Romans chapter 2. Do you take, kind, do you take lightly the kindness of God knowing that it's his kindness that leads us to repentance? Now, for those of us who are kind of filled with the idea that it's the fear of wrath that gets us going, I, I would say wrath is there. I'm not trying to dispute that. But the fear of wrath has never been quite as great a motivation as the kindness of God. Because once we taste that kindness and experience it, it produces something different within us. 
And so that's where I come to those verses that just I loved as a kid. But I noticed that the verses that I was given in my Awana book stopped at verse 9. Okay? Some of you know that as well. Okay? For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God produced beforehand that we should walk in them. God wants us to do good. He wants us to live well and morally and right. God desires that for us. It's just a question about what is the pathway to get us there. And if the pathway is fear, it's going to stop somewhere. Back to River City. So in using a play as an analogy, it's too easy to try identify characters with specific truths. And I have to admit, I'm guilty of that, okay? I, I did that. Well, but sometimes it's not so much the characters, but they can be inanimate objects. The fact is, the nostalgic river city is not quite as bad as Paul's characterization of sinful humanity. What happens to us, though, is that we, this may be more our problem than Paul's. We tend to make up pictures in our heads of things that are proclaimed in Scripture, like when you hear words of the spirit of disobedience or the cravings of the flesh. It helps us, as good people in church on Sunday morning, being in the right place at the right time, it helps us to otherize all those people out there who are by nature doing all those bad things. And Paul won't do that to us. He won't, he won't settle for that. And as we otherize those statements to other people, Paul draws us in. That's what the people in River City were afraid of. We're going to become the immoral group. That pool hall is bringing what's bad. And in the play, Marion, even in her reluctance, though, becomes a desirable pursuit for Harold. Marion's little brother finds meaning in Harold's scam, believing that he's found a new purpose in music. And this softens Marion's heart toward Harold. Now, just at this point, an accuser, Charlie Cowell, who's a former acquaintance of Harold, shows up. It's a really funny scene. It's interesting to note that Charlie Howe is the anvil salesman. But what you see is Charlie Howe comes on the scene and he's dragging a bag, a burlap bag, and you can just see him dragging it along. And as he's dragging this along, we don't know what's in it until all of a sudden he said, well, I'm an anvil salesman. And you're like, oh my goodness, he has to carry that thing behind him wherever he goes. The weight of that, if nothing else, the weight of it is going to make him angry. And he's decided that somehow he's out to tell the truth about who Harold Hill is. Says there is no, there is no music um, uh, college, music uh, university in Gary, Indiana. What are you talking about? We get that song, Gary, Indiana, Gary, Indiana. It's just kind of interesting about Charlie. He drags the anvil. And life... It's probably in some way more of an honest living. It is more of an honest living that Charlie has than what Harold has. 
But it's so exacting and tiring and tough. He stubs his toe on that anvil on a couple occasions, and you're just going like, wow, this is not a good way. That anvil, in my mind, represents, as I saw it, represents the honest drag of the law. It's a righteous life, but a harsh one nonetheless. If good living could save us, if morally exacting existence were the ticket, the grace of God then is a waste of time. That anvil, as hard and exacting and tough as it was, was Charlie's reason to boast. I'm not like that Harold Hill. I'm making an honest living. Oh, how painful. Episcopal priest Robert Capon, he offers it this way, and I always like him as a writer, but he says it this way. And it's, it's a long quote, but I think it's worthy of, of this conversation. And it's really not specifically talking about the law, but it's talking about living rightly as a means to set the world right. He says, Christians, therefore, in gratitude to God, continue to live and to pursue goodness of all sorts, pleasures of sports, the delights of the mind, the joys of mutual affection, the consolation of nature, satisfaction of virtuous and kindly acts, and lawful, no lawful action, high or low, great or small, is ever an inconsiderable thing for a Christian. However, but, still, nevertheless, in spite of all that, the gospel truth is that neither we nor the world can be saved by efforts at living well. If the human race could have straightened up its act by the simple pursuit of goodness, we would have done so long ago. We're not stupid, and Lord knows, from Confucius to Socrates to Joyce Brothers, we've had plenty of advice. But we haven't followed it. The world has taken a 5,000-year bath in wisdom, and it's just as grimy as ever. Once again, the world cannot be saved by living, and there are two devastating reasons why. The first is that we don't live well enough to get the job done. Our goodness is flawed goodness. I love my children and you love yours, but we have both of us messed them up royally. I'm a nice person and so are you, except for when my will is crossed or your convenience is not consulted. And then we are both so fearful that we get mean in order to get tough, and so on. The point is that if we're going to wait for good living to save us, we're going to wait a long time. We simply cannot crank it up to the level needed to eliminate badness altogether. But the second reason is more profound than that. The world's deepest problem is not badness as opposed to goodness. It is sin, the incurable human tendency to put self first to trust number one and no one else. And that means that there is nothing, no right deed, however good, noble, lawful, thrifty, brave, clean, or reverent, that cannot be done for the wrong reason, that cannot be tainted and totally corrupted by sin. The greatest evils are, with alarming regularly, irregularity, done in the name of goodness. 
And when we finally fry this planet in a nuclear holocaust, it will not been, have been done by a bunch of naughty little boys and girls. It will be done by grave, respectable types who love their high ideals too much to lay them down for the mere preservation of life on Earth. And lesser evils follow the same rule. When I crippled my children emotionally, for, or my parents did me, it was not done by meanness or spite. It was done out of love. Genuine, deeply felt, endlessly pondered human love, flawed, alas, by a self-regard so profound that none of us ever even noticed it. Switch to River City. What's needed by Harold, Marion, the mayor, and the entire town of River City is not an honest group of anvil salesmen. It's love. It's grace. Marion's grace captures Harold's heart. And after he collects his money and the deliveries have come, Harold abandons his escape instead to face a trial. It is at this moment that he is asked to prove his credentials as a band leader. And all the children of the town, dressed up in the new red uniforms, in, their, in, in these bright red uniforms, they engage their instrument at, instruments at Harold's direction, putting the coronets together, the trombones, everything, and they begin to play. Harold goes like this. It's agonizingly terrible. The noise is horrific, and Harold is exposed for the sham he is. But, but, wait a second. Nevertheless, as each parent begins to contemplate the joy on the faces of their children playing, the grace becomes contagious. Even the mayor is won over as the whole town begins to reflect the grace of that noisy moment. It's amazing. So if I was to draw an analogy to the characters in the play, I already stated that the anvil is the law. I would also have to say that grace, the Christ figure, are the instruments and the uniforms. They show up nowhere through the play except in that final moment. And as they are engaged and they are put on, grace is reflected through the town. That moment transforms everyone. Verse 10 states it this way, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's not that living well and doing good works is not important. The gospel is grace to us, and people of the good news become grace to each other and all who we connect with. And the rest of this chapter speaks to that, that as a result of this grace, the foundation for tearing down walls that we have that exclude us from one another are being broken down because the grace is so contagious. Folks, can you feel it? Can you feel it? That's what Christ has done for us. 
That's what God in Jesus has done for us by reconciling us to God's self. And in the middle of that reconciliation, as we experience the joy, we start to hear my neighbor on his harmonica playing grace, grace, God's grace that is greater than what? All our sin. Folks of Faith Covenant Church, this grace was necessary in fictional River City or Mason City or whatever it was. It's even so needed in Wheaton, Illinois. Grace that is greater than all our sin. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.